This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. All right, welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and uh, I got to level with you. I am on a run. I am on a run here with guests uh, that I think the world of, and I'm worried that I talk up all my guests enough that it starts to lose some credibility, but no way. I mean every word of it, and I am extremely excited to have uh, Robert Silverstein, better known as Dutch amongst his friends. So he makes me call him Mr. Silverstein. <laughs> <He's eminent. And> he, <laughs> he is the president of AM Auto Service in Pineville, North Carolina. Yep. He is also just very active uh, in our profession, just quite literally working his tail off to uh, raise that tide for everybody. Again, something I probably repeat often about many people, including and especially these, my guests, uh, just one of the greatest, nicest, uh, most down-to-earth people I've ever met in my life. It's always a joy to talk to him, uh, whether it's via podcast uh, or even just instant messaging, something like that. So uh, thank you very, very much for gracing uh, this interview, Mr. Silverstein. Mr. Silverstein, sir. All right, get, let's get it. All right, kids. Sir. You, Mr. Silverstein, Captain Silverstein, makes no, <laughs> your Majesty. Really, it, it, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. I'm all there. Um, very kind words. If you make sure that I have the spelling of your address correct, the check will be in route soon. I don't do Venmo or any of that. I'm way too old. I will send you the stuff in, <laughs> in uh, PayPal, but you're going to have to take the three percent hit because you know I'm a yid. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you're not going to. I'm, I'm not paying the, the percentage. Uh. You know. I'm delighted to be here. I guess we've we've talked a lot about what we're going to talk about, and there's it's a pretty wide range. So I think we're just going to kind of pick one thing and really speak to techs. Uh, even like myself, it's hard to know what what kind of value do I really provide the business. You know, in this case auto shop, but what am I bringing to the table, uh, to the shop and to the shop owner and the performance of the shop that can be an exchange also, uh, maybe negotiating points, maybe just a uh, peace of mind, but more on the negotiating end for wages or compensation. And not, I'm not even talking like confrontational far from it. Uh, I think it's, I don't think many people really know what are they, what are you really bringing uh, the shop in the form of profits? Because I, I think fundamentally that is my job is to, and I'll tweak it a little bit for my personal preference, that my job is to make the shop or make the business as ethically profitable as possible. That That's my job. I might ha- be given a certain uh, ta- set of tasks or a framework of which that is that expectation is to be fulfilled in the eyes of management. But you know, across the board, how can I learn uh, or better educate myself to a just know myself when I driving home or sitting at home thinking about things, and maybe looking at you know across the fence at this 
what looks like greener grass. Or I, I feel like I have a legitimate position to negotiate, you know, whatever that may be, uh, added benefits, higher wages. Well, there's, there's two ways of, of looking at this. The first is the intangible benefits that you're going to be bringing to a facility that you're going to be providing the owner. And it's not something that they've designed a metric for. Okay. You can't, you're not going to get paid for this. Um, you're going to be bringing, if you're worth the crap, you're bringing the intangibles in that number one, you're going to be reliable. You're going to show up every day when you're supposed to show up early. All right. If you have a, an eight o'clock start time, you don't show up at eight o'clock. You show up at a quarter to, because if you show up at eight o'clock in my book, you're late. All right. You have to be at your workstation. All right. You're going to bring a level of professionalism and competency, which is going to further the reputation of the facility at which you work. If you're good at what you do, then while you might not individually get the accolades from the public, you will get noticed by the, the shop owner or manager in charge. Okay. Someone will notice that because they're going to want to start feeding you work. If you're good at what you do, then, and you're enhancing the shop's reputation because you don't have many comebacks, because you're reliable, because people, when you leave the car, it's the little things, you don't leave it like a pigsty, right? If, you, if you're replacing a window regulator, you're not leaving fingerprints on, on the glass. You're taking pride in what you're doing. You're furthering, okay. Now, that's very, very difficult to measure. There is no metric for that. When you're in a position where you want to further your career and so far as your pay, the only thing that you have is a record of your achievement. And the record of your achievement is in the form of your paychecks for the last year and your attendance roster. Because what is a, a complaint that is frequently heard amongst owners is that lack of reliability and the fact that this guy said that he could turn 60, 65 hours a week and we have the work and he's struggling for 38. He's struggling for 35 and absenteeism is a, is a killer. So when you want to approach someone and saying, okay, I, I hear that uh, through the grapevine that you're hiring or you're seeing you answer an ad. The first thing that you need to do is you need to be able to go through all your pay stubs for like the previous year because you want to show that you're consistent in your behavior. And you can look and say, okay, over the last year, I have averaged X amount of hours per week. And from that, you then say, why was it that way? Was it because it legitimately wasn't any work? That happens. And that's not the fault of the tech. Okay? That's the owner's responsibility to try to bring in the vehicles so that the tech can do his job by providing a good service of making ethical recommendations for those items that are needed. Once you have that information of how many hours and, and why, you can then go to your prospective employer with that and say, okay, this is what I bring to the table. If you look, I have copies of my time cards, or I can tell you I always show up on time. It's very difficult to, to, to prove unless you have your, your copies. But when you say, I consistently turn whatever the hours is, 
38, 40, 60, 75 hours. And here is a record of my time. Now you've taken an unknown and you've just added your credibility to it because you have a record of it. You're not making this stuff up because it's going to have your payroll information and everything else on it. It's a legally binding document. You can't start, you know, screwing around with this stuff. Now you have a record of uh, what you're capable of doing. And if you say, look, I think, you know, I'm getting, we're making up a figure, okay? Uh, On average, 44 hours a week. And quite candidly, I'm not utilized as as well as I could be. I'm I'm just not. I can guarantee you that if you, and I'm willing to put it in writing, if you have the work for me, I can easily turn 50 or 55 hours a week. And I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is and say, let's schedule a, a performance review. But I, be advised, sir, I'm or madam, whatever your, your, your prospective interview is, I'm going to be keeping track. Because you want to be held accountable as a tech. You also want the owner to be held accountable. Right. Because we know, we all know, not only do you have techs who pad their abilities, B techs who say they're A's, how many hours they add, you also have owners who say, I guarantee you, you're going to be busy all the time. You're not, you're going to go home and you're going to be so exhausted. And if you want 80, 85 hours a week, you can do it here. And then you say, okay, that, that's great. What are you offering? Can I see records? I've always brought the records with me because I have a three-step process. And the last step of the process before the formal job offer is having dinner with the candidate and their spouse or significant other. Because if the significant other isn't on board with the change, life sucks. That person will make life miserable for that tech. And I do a shop tour with the significant other because I want them to see what it is that they're going to be spending so much time doing. So again, to summarize the intangibles is you're going to be increasing shop um, performance, increasing shop standing in the community insofar as reputation. The tangibles are basically the hours that you're going to turn that you're going to prove that's going to result in more money. If you're not willing to address both of those things, if you go to an interview and the only thing you're focusing on is saying, I, 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 me, 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 this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And you don't mention the company. If you don't know anything about the company, if you haven't taken the time to go to the company's website and find out anything about the about me page, when did the company start? What was its mission? Then you're not a team player. There's enough ego in the industry to begin with. We don't need any more. We need producers. Yeah, or the reviews, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wish the <clears throat> could the listeners could see me nodding. Remember, Matt, it's not what you say; it's what you can prove. Because it's two strangers that are that are meeting for the first time. They might have had a telephone interview. All right, but now everybody is is on the 30-day rule. It's that they're going to put their best foot forward, right, when they wind up doing this. 
because the owner wants to get a tech t- for, for productivity. The tech typically wants a job or that he can be proud of, of going to work, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody's going to try to put their best foot forward, but there's going to be a little bit of theater that's involved. Right. I mean, we, we have to be honest about it. So because until you prove it in my book, you're full of crap. If you come unprepared, if, if I say to you, OK, um, are you how many hours can you do a week? And you easily say, look, oh, it's not a problem. I'll knock back 60, 65 hours a week. That's great. That's wonderful. And you have any pay stubs to show me? And you say, no. I'm thinking, why not? Even if you took the pay stub and you redacted out, you markered out in, in black marker what your pay was, but it listed your hours. Okay. Why aren't you willing to prove what you can do? Because otherwise you're just a stranger who, who's making these wonderful claims, right? You're selling yourself without proof. You know, Christopher Hitchens said that which can be asserted without proof can be dismissed without proof. Kind of talking about uh, either maybe not new tech, you know, fresh out of school or anything like that, but uh, interviewing the the have whatever level of experience thinking about making a move to another shop and having this information. I don't know. I've never had somebody come in with an, to an interview with uh, time cards or some sort of a documentation uh, showing that they do show up on time. And then, you know, production numbers are always, you know, off the cuff, something I don't pay a lot of attention to. Well, you know, you can have a lot of guys have working interviews where they'll say, "Okay, come back on this day. I'll give you X amount of money. I'll pay you um, as long as it's less than six hundred dollars so that you can be an independent contractor. Uh, I'll pay you for the day. I want to see how you work. But the fact is that and for me, that shows initiative. If somebody comes to an interview and they are prepared for the interview, that shows initiative. But if it's really important as as. Uh, a shop owner, it's not a problem to say to the, when you're having the telephone interview, yeah, I'd like to, to see you. We can meet at my office or a restaurant or, you know, anywhere that's, it's a non-threatening environment. Please bring a copy of your pay stubs and your attendance. Well, now you've issued a challenge because if the guy told you that he could turn 65 hours a week and he Shows on his pay yeah, that he's yeah. doing 38. Okay, the question is why? Well, the work wasn't there is going to be the response. Okay, but I see you were there for four years. The work wasn't there and you decided that you were going to remain there for four years? Yeah. What's that all about? Yeah. Which is fine. What if the what if they come from a shop where that's um, acceptable? No, that, that's fine. If, if they come, a sh- come from a shop where 35 hours is acceptable, Okay, Um, then I'm going to look at him as being a 35 hour tech. I'm not going to look at him as being a a 45 or 50. I might give him the opportunity to prove how fast he is and how thorough he is in a working interview. But I can only go you can only swing at what's pitched. Right. So if a guy tells you that, that I'm capable of so much more. okay, you have to prove it. Right. If if, if you're going to buy a car and the guy who is selling you the car can tell you that this thing can run below 10 in the traps. Yep. 
you're going to want to see some damn time slips. Right. If he shows up with a 12 three, this is not <laughs> Well, I was taking it easy on the engine. You know, I didn't want to. I knew that I could do it. But no, yeah, look at my launch times. My reaction time was really bad on that one. Yeah. You know, look, let's check out my 60 foot. You know, I mean, come <laughs> on. This, this is not um, it's not rocket scientist. There's no reason. Trust is earned. It's not bestowed. There's no reason for someone to trust you with something that is as important to them as their business based on your word alone. Now, if, if that guy, it works for a shop and he has a reputation of busting the workout. I mean, because you know, we're, we're in a big, small industry and you know, which shops in town guys hustle, they hump, right? Cause you're talking to tool man and you know, you're getting the idea that this guy, he has got a really good reputation and the way to do it is for an owner is to do reconnaissance. I've gone in to parts departments for dealerships where they only know me by the phone, where there were techs, and turned to the people in parts and said, hey, listen, if you had to get your car fixed, give me two guys on the, on the floor that I should ask for when I bring my car in. Well, there you go. These are people who work with them every day. They see it every day. Right. If somebody says, oh, yeah, I, I can do great work, I'm going to check up on them because I owe it to my family to do that. And I want that technician to check up on me. I want the tech to, to ask questions so that the tech can have an understanding of what it is that he or she is getting into. The tech ought to know the difference between a relationship versus a transaction based business. They ought to know the difference between advocacy and salesmanship. They ought to know the difference between a volume-based business and one that isn't. Are they focusing on car count or average RO? These are questions that a tech needs to know because you can be in a very, very busy shop and have a really high car count, as we've discussed, I think, on other podcasts, and you're very, very busy, but you don't make any money, right? Conversely, you can be in a, in a a, a shop where you're getting three hours, two and a half, three hours per car and get four cars scheduled a day. Now there are guys that have four cars scheduled by 11 o'clock in the morning, right? But by 3.30 in the afternoon, they've gone through nine cars and they haven't worked through lunch. They still took their lunch. These are questions that they're making more money. So these are questions that, that a tech needs to answer. I don't care if a, if a tech is straight out of school. He has to know what car count is, what ARO is, what gross profit is, what gross profit uh, dollars is. There's a lot that a tech has to know in order to be able to speak the language that the owner speaks to convey the message of his worth. Yeah. Speaking of young techs, Dutch, you know, it's no secret we're facing a technician shortage. Napa Auto Care is addressing that. The free two-year apprentice program offers a variety of training to produce a technician with three ASE certifications. To learn more, members can visit member.napaautocare.com. Yeah, Napa's got a good program for that. They really do. And they support the shop with tech because they have an apprentice toolkit, which is an excellent, excellent value. So they really stepped up um, in this regard. Uh, it's, well, it's true, uh, you know, disclaimer, I'm a Napa Auto Care uh, Center. 
and have been for 16, 17 years now, I think since 2000, well, actually more than that, but it's not that they're not without problems or like any other organizations, but this they've really done right. They absolutely have. Yeah. And you can speak from experience that, you know, what they're doing is, I mean, it, I'm not sure I'm aware of too many other programs that are like that to help shops kind of grow their own uh, or help mature that tech from uh, or evolve even maybe from entry level up to, you know, wherever they're going to end up. It's a great idea in aviation. They have the, the programs they are called ab initio where they take students who are uh, learning to fly and the students wind up going through the program where they, the student's paying for it. You know, it's not free. Um, the student's paying for it. He's, he's getting his licenses, et cetera. And as he's moving up, uh, going from his private, his instrument, his uh, multi-engine, his, his commercial CFI, et cetera, um, he gets the opportunity to be in the pipeline to be on one of the regionals. Lufthansa has a program. Several airlines has, have a program like this where he's actually now getting paid. Uh, to work as a first officer. So ab initio has been around for a long time in aviation, and I think it's great that it's happening here. Growing your own has its own advantages and disadvantages too, you know, but it's it's a good program. Right. It really is. It's kind of interesting. I know it's it's probably too long ago for it to be relevant from my perspective from when I went to school, but I, typically what I see with young people coming in, they've had classes on interviewing. But it's kind of like you say, they come dressed a certain way, uh, composed a certain way. They have their application or they fill out their application, you know, try to write leg legibly, stuff like that. But I'm not sure they were ever educated, like you're saying, to ask those types of questions. Like, is this a volume type shop or is this an AO ARO type shop? You know what kind of a what kind of a work environment am I getting myself into, and kind of having that uh, reckoning with yourself are of are you the fast paced person? You know that bang 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 bang. You know I want to rifle through these vehicles. You know like you're saying, nine, ten, twelve cars a day, or more, or is it the other way where, you know, three, four cars uh, on average uh, with the higher uh, um, ROs, uh, typically stuff like that. Well, see, that's that's the problem where the, there is a uh, really, really huge void between the academic world, insofar as um, education in the real world. Okay, we used to say in aviation that, that you really wanted to learn to fly when you were a flight instructor. You got your flight instructor's rating, and that's when you learned to fly, because people would try to kill you. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't know how to do something until you've actually done it. And the fact is that, that oftentimes the people that are teaching the classes are not successful shop owners. These aren't people that, that are multi-store operators who are doing this because they want to pay it forward. And all the ones that I've seen, and it's a very limited, a very small data set. And I certainly admit that I could be wrong. But in my experience, the people that have been doing this are former techs, failed shop owners on this, and that's about it. Nobody's, you know, when it, when it gets to the point where 
they need the job, right? Well, if, if you're a successful shop owner and you're retiring, now you're doing this, you don't need the job. You might want to do it out of passion because you want to help pay it forward. And do, But you don't need the job because if you've been doing your business right, you have money set back. Uh, I have a friend of mine, I haven't spoken to him in a while, but he's an instructor for, uh, and he had an engineer. He was an engineer. So he was never a shop owner. He was an automotive engineer. And he did this. He retired after 20 years, and he is now an instructor for one of the local auto-related programs. I'm not, I'm not going to give the company name away. Um, that's not far from here. And he, he laments the fact that they have to give out awards for attendance. They make a big deal about giving out attendance awards. So at that point, that's, that's real world, isn't it? If you, you, know, you have to be um, congratulated for what? Showing up doesn't seem like a real high bar. Well, that's one of the things that I talked about, wasn't it? So I'm bringing your attendance record to show, you know, any interview that I've ever had with any member of the staff in any position in my shop, I've always asked, how many days of work did you miss last year? That's all. And I'm looking for an honest response because it really depends on the reason, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm guessing the last couple of years, those numbers are inflated, depending also where you live. But a lot of them are inflated because of some mandates or whatnot. I, you know, we have a customer service rep that she's missed a lot of work uh, because her daycare has some very progressive An abundance of caution. Yeah, though, beautiful. That's a very well stated abundance of caution when it can when concerning uh covid so any kind of close contact it isn't just that kid uh and kids in that quote-unquote room they pretty much shut the whole thing down uh so there's been it's 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 really tough i mean you know the i, I you know what do you do <laughs> my heart goes out to the number one the single parents to begin with and i've i've hired single parents. And when I was going to school, if you had yeah. the sniffles or you had something that was going on with you, unless it was a matter of uh, you ruptured your appendix or you severed a, a hand, you went to the nurse's office and you sat in the nurse's office until your mother could come get you <laughs> after she was finished with work. Right. There, there was no, yeah, you didn't, there was no, uh, come on, you have to collect your kid be, because yep, yep. he or she has the sniffles and we can't, you know, and one of the people that worked for me, she, a very, very nice woman, but she had three children that were, you know, you, you send small kids to school, they get sick. You know, it's a breeding ground for, for colds, et cetera. Um, yeah, absolutely. And she was constantly having to leave work early and would miss days because yep. this one, there wasn't anybody who could stay, you know, and my heart goes out to her, but she didn't last real long here. Because there's only so much of that crap you can put up with. I mean, you can try to extend yourself. You're certainly understanding, et cetera. But at the end of the day, you have yep. overhead that's got to be paid. You have work that has to be done. And Duke Energy does not give a rat's behind if you couldn't get all the work that you needed out to collect the revenue to pay their bill because you right. were being a nice guy because 
this particular person kid uh, got a bad case of flatulence. You know, I mean, it's not. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. You know, Johnny has a, a tummy ache. Well, make him puke in the wake basket and sit his <laughs> ass down in the chair. You know, I mean, it was. This is. I don't wish to be insensitive, but I don't care. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> that, that happened in my time where kid went to the sick room. We had they called it the sick room. There's I don't know three four cots in there, and can't, he was back. Uh, a couple hours later, like, yeah, I puked and then they go back go? to class, oh, right? I, I, I mean, it's, I felt you know, much better afterwards. <laughs> and again, you know, obviously, if some child is seriously sick, et cetera, you want to take it on a case by case basis. But this, you know, this this overabundance of caution in this nanny state stuff is really affected work. So for, you know, a while, I, I, I just determined that I was not going to be hiring any women who had child were in that children in that those years where they were going to be in in school where they couldn't get home if they needed to. Um, that was, you know, if somebody stellar had presented, I might've reconsidered, but that wasn't, wasn't in my plan. So if you have some of these numbers, you, you know, the, you can prove that you uh, are reliable and whatever, whatever the production numbers are, let's just assume they're acceptable. What can a tech use those? How would they go about using those numbers to determine if this is going to be a dangerous framework or way, a really dangerous way of framing this question, but I'm not sure how else to do it. But determine if they're being treated fairly. Well, being treated fairly is completely subjective. For one person, being treated fairly can be completely different than some, you know, than than someone's uh, someone else's view of what it what it takes. What you have to determine at at the very beginning is if you're going to add ask for a specific dollar per hour, either hourly or if you're going to go flat rate, whatever you know. Oh, excuse me, where's where's that sick room? Um, <laughs> wait, I got a waste basket here. Um, <laughs> yeah, better, be better exactly, right? you they have to be able to to know right off, off the top that one of the formulas that, that they should know is if they want they have to know what their their shop posted shop labor rate is one of the first questions uh, after being thanked for the opportunity after they meet somebody and have some polite exchange of small talk there's going to be time when the interviewer is going to say, well, do you have any questions for me? Do you have any questions before we begin that I can help answer for you? And one of the first questions should be is, uh, can you tell me what your labor rate is, your posted labor rate? And the answer he shouldn't be surprised is to find that there are going to be several, right? Yeah, a tiered labor rate. But on average, what is your, your average labor rate? So right off the top, in today's business environment, he should know that what the target that the, the shop is looking for is a 70% gross profit on labor. So he has to be able to calculate in his head based, or he can write it down and say, okay, stop for a second. You know, it's, it's not a problem to do it. He can even go online and get a gross profit calculator and have it on his phone at the time that he asks the questions. I mean, because they're online. Yep. So that he knows what he can reasonably ask for. If he's asking for a figure, 
if the guy's got a, and we're making something up, if the fellow has an 85, if the shop rate is $85 an hour and he wants, he's an A-tech who wants $35 an hour unloaded labor rate, the odds are that shop cannot afford him. That's not the shop for him, right? Because when you do the math, you can see that that's just not going to cut it. So one of the things he has to do is he has to say, okay, can, can the shop cut it? He has to be able to look at, and this is, see, all this involves work and people, not just text people, all people are generally inherently lazy, right? So another question is, well, where do you pull your customers from? That's a reasonable question because what he should have done is gone to city, the text should have gone to city data and looked up to see what the demographic is in the area. Well, if you're in a blue collar area where the average income is $38,000 a year or 40 or 45, that's going to tell you something if the owner tells you, well, we, we pull pretty much from a radius of five miles from the shop. Okay. If he says, um, well, we have a radius of five miles and within one of those five miles, you have, as we have here where I am, the yuppie containment center where you, you have uh, the demographic shows that it's basically six figures. Okay. That tells him more about the type of work that he's yep. going to be doing or potentially could be doing. He can ask to see work orders. I have no objection to a tech coming up to me and saying, listen, um, I think I'd like to work for you, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd kind of like to know if we're in a process of feeling one another out. I'd kind of like to know what it is I might expect. Can I see, you can block out the names for me. I don't need to know any personalized information. Can you show me in your um, shop management system, your point of sale, you can do whatever you need to do to show me how many hours per RO your average ticket is and how many hours your techs are turning per day on average, which is information that he should have. The, uh, an owner should have car count, should have average yep. RO, should be able to to uh, determine what what his demographics are, all the information that he should should know. And there's a lot, but I, you know, I, I, I'm leery because I don't want guys' eyes to glaze over. You know, I, I don't want to start going into formulas and, and stuff. But basically, he wants to make sure that he's joining a winning team. And one of the things that that he can do is um, talk to somebody who's working there, right? That's really good advice, if you can. And if you, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, right? Because I'm not telling you to stalk a tech to find out when he's going to the Waffle House for breakfast on Sunday. <laughs> All right, so you could just pop up, oh, hey, you know. Have him ask around through the tool dealers. A tool dealer who stops by a shop, especially if, if, if there's going to be a lot of dealers, you know, Mac, MacGo, Cornwell, uh, Snap-on, who's going to be stopping by shops, that tool dealer is going to know, number one, does the shop say typically busy? When Every time you've been there on a Wednesday or whatever, the, you know, is the shop generally busy? Number one. Number two, how are they fixed for equipment? Number three, does he go to training a lot? Does he bring training in? What do the techs say? And that's a question that you can ask the prospective employer, right? 
which is tell me how long your techs have been here. Is there high turnover? If there is, why? You can ask, um, and the, the tech should have no problem being introduced by the owner um, if what he's telling you is accurate to the staff. A lot of guys want to keep everything you know, secret, et cetera. No, no need. You want tra- some level of transparency. Now, a tech should not expect to be able to turn to an owner and say, I want to see your tax returns for the last year. <laughs> that, that ain't going to happen. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you could ask, but it, you, <laughs> the result is not, yeah, the result is not going to be what you want. Okay. You have to do your due diligence and your homework. Too many times uh, techs leave because they're dissatisfied with the culture or they think that they can earn more money, et cetera, et cetera, someplace else, or they're appreciated more, whatever, without actually doing their homework. Um, do your homework. Ask the questions. If you were an employer, right, if you, if Bill Gates magically were to confer upon you a shop and say, okay, I bought you all the equipment, I bought you everything you need, but you have to staff it and you have to show me, you can get to keep the shop um, completely free, but you have to show me that you've done work to determine who the best hires are going to be. What questions are you going to ask? Well, you have to be able to answer those questions yourself, don't you? What what other choice do you have, Matt? Right? If you want to show your value, which is what we got back to in the beginning, if you want to show your value to your employer, you have to prove your value. The only way to prove your value is to pass precedent. That's it. Money talks, BS walks, right? Okay, so if you can show that you can turn time, if you can show that you show up, if you can show that you're going to add uh, to the culture, if you're going to be a, a can-do person, or you're going to be a whiny little bitch, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you a repair shop owner? Do you find yourself struggling with any of the following? Uncertainty about the future and competition. Are you spending too much time managing chaos and struggling with new employees? Do you lack time to invest in learning best practices? or there's no time to spend on effective marketing. How do your finances look? Are you reactive rather than proactive? Do you know where you should be, when to grow, when to shrink? If any of those situations describe where you are today, you are finally in the right place. Repair Shop of Tomorrow is Napa Auto Care's newest endorsed partner. They are helping shops all over the nation run more profitable automotive repair shops by utilizing proven business best practice marketing and coaching to leverage Napa programs, to drive quality, car count, sales, and profits. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percentage, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Team up with coaches to create systems, operations, and procedures using a business flow chart to help you reach your goals. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will help measure and manage the results to help each business succeed. Best of all, it's not do-it-yourself. It's all done for you. Their goal is to help dealers do what they do best, fix cars and build relationships at the counter and in the community. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will take the other minutiae off your plate. The Repair Shop of Tomorrow offers a tier-based program to not only generate more business today, but to transform your shop into a top-level shop of tomorrow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow can teach you how to make your shop profitable. They can teach you how to recruit and how to make more labor dollars for your shop. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 
1230 for a free 20 minute no obligation consultation or contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. I think we're on the same wave same wavelength. I think I would tweak it slightly in that I'm trying to think of how to phrase it better that a tech is empowered or maybe not just a tech but employee but really a tech to avoid the scenario of shop B you know, mm-hmm. to, they co- they go in and they turn in their notice. You know, either you do an exit interview or you're like, really? Well, I didn't know there was an issue. Well, you know, shop B, they're, they're going to give me five more dollars an hour and, mm-hmm. you know, or higher guarantee or whatever. And then there, what I think happens a lot, it's we've experienced this uh, a fair bit is that then the, the shop, or the shop owner, whatever employer offers them as much or more mm-hmm. uh, than shop B offered. And from what I've seen, they usually stay. Uh, I have a, quite a few friends that would argue uh, till they're blue in the face. And it's hard to disagree with them that they should not accept that. You know, I was, I wasn't worth this much to you until I threatened to leave or I was going to leave. I want to avoid that situation altogether. You know, the tech can kind of uh, assess their value so that, and I'm not trying to demonize. I don't want to sound like I'm demonizing shop owners either. Cause I think every, like you said, it's, it's laziness or maybe it's just complacency too. Like there, there's no complaints or whatever. Things are going good. You get busy, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to do. You know, there's maybe the automatic cost of living increases and maybe, maybe not suggesting anything, just maybe uh, when there's a shop labor rate increase, everybody kind of gets a bump. Not, I'm not implying that that's the way it should work at all. I'm just trying to have scenarios here where the techs would get a bump uh, that's maybe not quote unquote scheduled. And then... Because of that, if you don't have a proactive employer or you're not a proactive employer that you're on top of things like, hey, you know, intangibles, tangibles, bump, bump, uh, bump, that you're not sitting there as a tech or as the employer or manager with this scenario of, uh, you know, here's my two weeks, here's my three weeks, I'm going to shop B, more money. You know, closer to home, drive, shorter drive, you know, whatever. They're going to let me focus on this area of repair that I like better than what I do here, blah, blah, blah. That that was part of the nature of the question is to avoid that scenario from both perspectives as a tech and as a um, employer. There's a double standard that's being applied here. And I, and, and I hope to, and this is not a personal attack on you, but I, I'm asking that you're looking at this from a different perspective. All right. Um, and the double standard is, is that each of us, employer, employee, as individuals, right? We each navigate by the star of enlightened self-interest. It's somebody far wiser than I said that. Okay. So your friends who, who say, well, in the case where I say I'm going to shop B and now uh, they're going to give me $5 an hour and my original employer says, well, I'll match it. And some of your friends said, well, I, listen, why didn't he give me that to me before? Well, because he was looking out after his self-interest. 
The same way, if you're looking out after your self-interest, you're going to make the move to go somewhere else. So before you make the move to go somewhere else, wouldn't it behoove you to speak to your employer and say, hey, listen, I think I've been doing a good job for you. Let's have a periodic review over the next X, Y, and Z, month, 30 days, whatever, because uh, I'd like to have some things to talk to you about. Okay. And one of the things that you're going to talk about is a race or training. In other words, the righteous indignation that, that these, your friends feel when they say, well, I wasn't good enough before, but now I'm going to get it. Well, that's a bunch of crap because if they remain mute, their employer is not a mind reader, right? It's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. They have a responsibility to relay or to convey their needs, their wants to their employer to see if their employer is able to do that. Now, in the case with the $5, perhaps the employer would say, okay, I can I can do that because in his mind, he was going to um, institute, excuse me, a labor rate increase. So now he can afford it. Now, but whereas before he couldn't. Now he can afford it because the loan that he took out on the piece of equipment that he's paying X amount of dollars for every month has been paid off. He doesn't have that debt service anymore for whatever reason. You can automatically assume, and that's the, that righteous indignation that the tech has. Well, I wasn't worth it before, but now that I'm going to leave. Now I'm worth it. <laughs> you have no idea what that owner's going through. None. So unless you establish open lines of communication where you can talk to one another as civil human beings, you have no, you have no cause to bitch. I'm sorry. You lose the right to complain if you're waiting for reactive action instead of proactive action. Now I'll go to my guys and I talk to them frequently, not like once a day or any of that sort of stuff. And it's not a form. Just ask him, is everything okay? Is there anything I can do for you? Is there something you need? Everything all right at home? I'm just, you know, I'm curious about you. I, I, I want you to know I'm concerned if there's something that you need, something you want to talk about, whatever it is, I just want to make sure you're happy here. And I proactively give raises without being asked. I proactively buy tools and equipment for them theirs. I give them without being asked because you have to show this stuff. So for the tech that says, well, how do I know what I'm worth? Well, you have no idea. You're worth what your employer is willing to pay or someone is willing to pay. That's it. And because you can get more money from the other person or the other shop, that's great. That doesn't mean your first employer has, holds anything against you if he really legitimately can't afford it. Or how about this? He can't afford it. He just doesn't want to. Doesn't he have the right to do that? Yep. I think so. No, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You you have every right to not work there, and they have every right yeah, to... This is what I'm offering. Um, this This is what I can afford to do, or this is what I'm willing to do. And if they can make more money, do anything, whatever it is, shorter commute home. Because there's some things in your example that the other shop owner can't, <laughs> if a guy has to drive 50 minutes to get to work and there's a shop that's 10 minutes from his house that allows him to avoid two hours worth of, of driving in the morning, I don't care how much money you give him. If that guy is family oriented, he's going to want to go home. 
right? And there's nothing that, that $5 an hour more is going to do for him, right? Because he wants to be home, right? He wants to attend his kids' ball games. He wants to do, you know, whatever it is, that, or his daughter's dance recitals, whatever. It doesn't matter. The fact is that that kind of is not something you're going to put a price on insofar as $5 an hour is not going to make up for it. So the question is, how are you going to, to judge from the, um, you have to be from what the employer can afford. You have no idea what the employer can afford, except in the grossest terms with ballparking based on labor rate, et cetera, and based on the amount of work. And you're going to have to do some calculations. So if you're at one shop and you want to leave in the employee, and why would the employee say that? Why would the employer say that? Because even if they could afford that $5 an hour, let's say they can't. They really can't. They're going to have to dig into company savings to, to, to get this. They're not, you know, the employer wants to bank X amount of dollars. He's not going to be able to do this um, at, at this point. The cost to onboard a new employee is stupid expensive. Advertising, lost productivity, et cetera, et cetera. It's just ridiculous. It takes time and you're losing. So it's not just a matter of the $5 an hour. It's a matter of the advertisements that you have to put in the paper, the lost revenue, for the opportunity cost of that, because when that employee is gone, you're not doing any, you're not getting work out the door. And if the employee was decent, if he was a solid B who wants to go somewhere else for whatever reason, you finding another B who's going to be able to come in and immediately take his place insofar as efficiency and productivity is not really likely. Not if the guy's any good. He's going to take time to spin up. He's got to get good at the shop and feel comfortable. You know, I'm trying to think like analyzing where the the questions come from and why I ask them and why that's why it's interesting and why I feel like th- those listening, those are the types of question they would a- questions they would ask. Is I think it's been, and this isn't like a statement. This is. I think we've had it uh, been told now as technicians long enough that we've kind of been dumped on for many years, undervalued, not just by the public, but by uh, our employers. And so now with the, the short or, you know, technician shortage, or I think it's employees shortage across the board right now. They're trying to, we're trying to play catch up or, trying to get a sense of what it means now where where do we fit in this the the world of skilled trades and you know i i know there's a lot going on with it even you know at our shop too just thinking about all the overhead and some of it's imposed self-imposed right we we do it to ourselves but also the issue with i find is the value of the machinery that we're servicing or the you know, the, the vehicles have a value when you start approaching a certain percentage of the value of that to repair it. And it's much lower than some of the other skilled trades. So, you know, while our skill sets may command certain uh, compensation levels outside of auto repair, getting that to translate inside auto repair gets to be it kind of gets dicey it's it starts feeling like it almost almost hurts us so i I think the reason i'm asking is 
I got to believe there's a lot of people sitting at home, a lot of techs feeling undervalued, underappreciated, but then really not knowing how they can go in the office and say like, uh, or, or, you know, the owner's office, the employer's office and say, Hey, you know, we got to talk about wages and we'd have to factor in cost of living and where you live and all that. But just having that, uh, having a little bit of knowledge to be able to go in there and comfortably say, based off these knowns, cost of living, shop labor rate, my build hours, my production, and then what I feel are these intangibles I bring. And I don't know if, you know, they can't put a dollar amount on it, but it's contributing to this to be able to ask for however much that dollar bump, dollar an hour or, you know, wage uh, salary at the end of the year is to be able to comfortably and confidently ask that. And, and even if it puts the ball in the uh, shop owner's court to sit back and have to go like, I might have to change things or like you're saying, I'm not willing to pay it. Sorry. You know, and I'm not trying to make that sound bad either. That That is not a quote unquote bad thing to say. It might be bad from the technician's perspective who's asking for the raise, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm not saying that's fundamentally bad. I don't want to perpetuate the evil shop owner, you know, designation inappropriately. Technicians now are going through, and it, it's funny, the parallels, and I think that's it's kind of given me a different perspective. Technicians now are going through what pilots are, are going through. For years and years, um, there was a glut of people who were willing to um, fly for virtually no money because they had to build hours in order to get hired on with the airlines. We had, um, there was a very, very famous, it was a commuter based here out of uh, Charlotte that had first officers that are flying transport category airplanes that were on public assistance. They're on food stamps. And um, when the airline that I worked for laid off pilots because of the economy and some of those pilots went to the commuter where they were, they were picked up, when the president of the company came down, um, <laughs> one of the guys asked, he said, look, how is it that you can possibly justify paying so little to first officers that they are qualifying for food stamps? And at that time, the president of the company was absolutely nonplussed. He said, look around. Do you see any empty seats? He has a responsibility to the corporation to pay as little as possible for labor. And for years, it was the same way in the the trade uh, because not only were there guys who were my generation and, and some subsequent generations that wanted to, to learn about cars and wanted, you know, got involved actively in the hot rod hobby and, you know, really. But there was always a guy who was willing to undercut the shop up the street because of the hero complex. There's always somebody who's willing to do it cheaper. Well, now, so the combination of the fact you had too many people chasing too, um, too few jobs and people that were willing to do the jobs for much less to assume the risk because they wanted, you know, uh, the money. Well, slowly that morphed into now there isn't enough people. So now for the first time, and this is a great period of time for technicians and for pilots both, actually, because they have leverage. What you're asking me is how can you exert this leverage 
to gain where you should be in the socioeconomic strata that, that is in our society. What can we do? Well, the first thing goes back to what I said before, know where you are, know what your value is based on common numbers, numbers that he can un understand. If you're going to compare what you're doing to a plumber or any uh, uh, of that, you have to understand that for many programs, there is, and I hate licensure. Right? I'm not a fan of licensing. I'm not because it doesn't. Um, but the way that it's it's structured, anybody can essentially step up just like happens here down south. Anybody here down south can go to Home Depot and buy themselves a tool belt and call themselves a carpenter and get a job on a framing crew. There's no uh, prescribed instruction on it, certainly no testing on it, right? Um, if you want to gain the status Okay, if you want to be recognized for being the professional that you are or the consummate tradesman that you are, then three things have to happen, in my view. The first, there has to be a concerted public effort, uh, public relations campaign showing that, yeah, no, this is not your father's Oldsmobile. All right. It really isn't. All right. Th these are um, if you're going to be repairing these cars, servicing these cars, you have to be smart. You're not going to end this image of being a knuckle-dragging goober, right, where uh, being a technician is a consolation prize has got to end. And the only way to do that is through education, public service spots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for me, the ASC has failed in this regard. Okay, that's just my personal view, you, you know. Number two, there has to be practical tests, just as there are for physicians, just as there are for uh, airline pilots, just as there are for accountants, there has to be a way to demonstrate proficiency. You, you shouldn't be able to walk into, again, into uh, Home Depot and pick up some Milwaukee tools and just say, you know, I'm a, I'm a tech. I can do, you know, I'm an oil change tech, et cetera. The public has to change and you have to be able to be able to prove your worth. Well, the way to do that is through consolidation. Yeah. As horrible as it's going to seem, I think a lot of shops have to shut down. I think that I think a lot of shops, and I, I don't wish ill on anybody. I really, I, I'm not looking forward to seeing somebody hit the street and then having a family he can't feed or she can't feed. That sucks. I mean, there's nothing pleasant about that. Yeah, I've had that thought. But the reality is we have too many shops chasing too few dollars. And as long as anybody who winds up doing side work is cutting their own throat, they have to realize they have to stop. They have to stop. If your primary employer is not meeting your needs now in a time when you have leverage, change your freaking job. Because every time you go out and you do side work, and you've heard me preach about this before, I apologize, you're cutting your own throat. You're limiting your family's ability to have the things that they should have because you're establishing precedent in the market. Yep. There's no reason that a solid B tech shouldn't be earning close to a hundred thousand dollars between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars, and an A tech easy, hundred and a half, hundred and a quarter, right? C tech, general service tech shows up all the time, thirty five to fifty. Why not? Shouldn't he as make as much as, as as a plumber? That C tech has got more money in his toolbox than that plumber does. Okay, now the plumber may have a van, 
right? I mean, if we're going to include that, but insofar as, so that's what, what I want to see, right? Public perception has to change through education. Absolutely. We need to have licensing insofar as not actual by the state, but self-policing would be a, a better way of doing it for, for right? Um, and standardization. Because you wouldn't get on an airplane with a guy who claimed that he was a pilot unless he could prove it. And pilots have to prove it in written and verbal practical exams and then line orientation flight training. Well, there's a reason that standards have to be met. And the public recognizes that, so the pay is commensurate with it. Anybody and their grandmother can go to any store that sells hardware and tools, come out and go to a dealership and say, hey, uh, I can be an oil change tech for you. You I I don't know much, but you teach me and I'll do it. Without some sort of curriculum, that's the reason why the NAPA program is good. That's the reason why the program from uh, Astra's is good. Because you can generate, you can it has it has a curriculum. You follow the curriculum. There's progress reports. There's there's a way yep. to make sure that that person is on a true career path versus saying, okay, oh, you want to be an apprentice? Great, you're going to clean the toilets for the first year, and you're going to go run out and go get lunch for everybody. And every now and again, we'll you know, or uh, when you get proficient at it, we'll have you doing oil changes for the next two and a half years, mounting and balance tires. For me. And, and maybe you, there's a kind of a certain, I'm going to, I'm going to, there's kind of a certain romance to that. Um, and I only really see it in the, the family type businesses where it's the, the kid, either one of the techs or usually one of the shop owners, kids starts out sweeping the floors, maybe, the, you know, car detailing after service, washing the cars, vacuuming them out, and really working their way up through um, the levels, if you will, or the different tasks of auto repair and maybe shadowing uh, somebody or watching, looking over their shoulders. And the, the shop owner's kid, but, you know, he's not paid. He or she's not paid, but they're paying attention and they kind of go through that apprenticeship program, but it's not really, you know, designed that way. Not like what you would see in some of the other trades where there is a legitimate uh, apprentice program and uh, you kind of go through that process. Uh, a lot of the young people coming in have zero interest in doing that. Uh, they do not want to start at the ground floor and work their way up to coming in like you kind of like what you mentioned, like very little to no skills. I'm, they're not really bringing a whole lot. They have potential, which does, you know, the value is, you know, subjective at best to go through that process of starting out at the very bottom and working your way up through the lube rack. And where maybe some shops have dropped the ball is, as they go through that progress, kind of rewarding that progress, if that makes sense. And that's not, I'm not trying to be like super critical of shops either, shop owners. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff, you know, broken that's outside of that. But we don't perpetuate it necessarily that well either for that coming up through the ranks and working your way up. And then something I feel very strongly about that I think is, it's getting better and better every day, every year for sure. Uh, 
having the experienced tech, the techs that that's been with you for a decade, two decades, and the young tech on the lube rack on, you know, it's like, this sucks. You know, it's a hundred degrees in here, changing oil. It sucks. I'm not making all that much money. And my buddies, they went to, you know, they're working at a factory. They make more money than I do. And that journeyman tech or that master tech, the, you know, the one that's been with you taking the kid aside and saying, look, you know, this is a great place to work. This is a great profession. And yes, yes. Right now your buddies are making more money than you, but you keep at it. You keep working on this area. You're, you're really good at this. Need a little more work on this. And you start getting on where you're, you know, doing some breaks, that type of work. Those guys aren't, they'll never catch you. You'll, you're going to do just fine. I'm, happy i you know i got a nice house i got whatever yeah however they're going to qualify that basically boosting the profession itself and the shop they're working in and that that to me is a really powerful marketing program that i don't know happens enough i think it's getting better don't get me wrong i better like you said earlier it's never been in my memory this good i probably have to go Man, I don't know what back into the 60s, 70s, 60s when it was 50s, 50s after the war when the economy exploded and the, the opportunities. A lot of guys were coming out of service with motor pool experience. There were, you know, the, that was and everything was was really um, we focused from a manu- we were focused on a manufacturing economy instead of a service economy, and guys could build a good life for themselves at that time. Uh, yeah, you know, basically you're an, you're an old soul. Okay. I, I, and I speak this affectionately. Um, the romantic idea that, that you have falls flat on its face because it relies on deferred gratification and deferred gratification is frowned upon. Now the idea of sacrificing today for the blessings of tomorrow by and large has been eclipsed by what can you do for me now? I graduated college. I want six yeah. <laughs> figures. I don't plan on putting more than 38 hours of work. And you know, you know a whole bunch of, of entitled entitlement issues that are, are brought. So, yeah, obviously the, the programs, the apprenticeship programs that you spoke of that do exist, that are structured, are wonderful. But you still have to find a, a person who is willing to take it in the shorts for a few years and be uncomfortable and to look and see his friends that are have eclipsed him and may have that house sooner than he is or drive a nicer car than or got married or now on their second kid or any of that while he's struggling. That's not an easy thing to do. It relies on character, which is in short supply. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'd, I'd love to see it. And I'm, I'm in heart and just like you are to see that, that, these programs are, are now being um, reinvigorated and, and brought back, but it's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to, and the only way to do it is for a mother to want to be able to see if a mother to turn to her kid. Imagine two old ladies are talking. Okay. They're on a park bench and their kids are grown and they haven't seen one another for a long time. One's going to turn to the other and says, what is, what is your son? Oh, my son's a, an accountant. Oh, it's very nice. And you're always oh, a plumber. Oh, it's good. He's good. He's a plumber. Yeah, sure. Right. Because that it, it, saying that they're a plumber, okay, has a certain status that's involved with it, right? Plumbers earn good money. Okay. 
that's what that says. Now you you know same women. Oh, my son's an accountant, and my um, my other one's a mechanic. Pause, right? Because there's there's no status that's involved with that. Not status insofar, but there's no recognition of the sacrifice and the work that in, that's involved. Because in the mind of the public, it hasn't changed. And if you look at it, if you look at shops, why should it? Because they're advertising tune-ups. Really? I can't tell you the last time I changed points. <laughs> right? You look on some of the paperwork from the shops, what they wind up doing on their 30-point courtesy inspections and stuff, and it says check mixture. Really? How are you doing that, sport? <laughs> Field trims. <laughs> you got an ASC test. Check drum brakes. Really? Really? Carburetors? Really? Nice. I mean, look, you give me a Rochester Quadrajet, I'm a happy camper, right? That's not a problem. <laughs> I'll rebuild that son of a bitch all day long. I'll forget where the check balls go, but it'll come back to me. <laughs> not a problem. Do you, do you put the pad under those plugs or do you do you epoxy them? Oh, no, no, no. You, you leave the plugs alone because you got to play. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. You, 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 you. Uh-uh. No, no, no. Put it, no. Uh, what are you kidding me? No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm old school. You, hell, when I was coming up, you wanted your car to sound mean. You flipped the air cleaner cover over. Wah, wah, wah. You know, that's <laughs> you were hot stuff then, you know. I learned the firing order of a Chevy 350 before I learned my own social security number. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I, uh, I encourage one, one thing that, that I forgot to mention before is, is that aside from those things that, that I mentioned, I really think that techs have to learn terminology so that they can speak to owners and the people that hire them in the language that they understand. You have to create that line of communication because number one, you want that owner to know that you're not no dummy, that you understand business, so that you're not going to ask for anything that's unreasonable. There was a, a, a forum, I'm not going to mention the name, where the, the, this technician simply did not understand why he was not entitled to 50% of the labor rate. And he was going to argue to his blue in the face, you know, we did this, this happened in the 60s, this happened in the 70s, this happened in the 80s, there's no reason why I should not be allowed to get 50% of the, the labor rate. I haven't earned it. What's changed? Nothing's changed. Everything he, you know, went off on a rant, the moron. But, okay, so um, <laughs> the fact is that at, when you say stuff like that, you're showing your ignorance because you don't have a clue. You're so self-focused on yourself that you don't know what the hell is happening to the outside of the industry, right? I'd love to be able to have the same expenses that I did when I started turning wrenches in the 70s. I would love it. Not a problem, right? How many subscriptions did you have to pay for when you're working on your Rochester Quadrajet? <laughs> you bought those uh, motor books or the Mitchell books once every few years. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I've got them upstairs, man. That's, you know, I still have stuff from 64. <laughs> At one point, um, my friend who was the engineer, I had every owner's manual, not every, uh, every shop manual for every car that General Motors produced for wow. 20 years. He was an engineer and he had them and I bought them for wow. 500 bucks because 
I wanted them and I filled the storage building with them. And then ultimately, you know, many, many years later, I pitched them except for the ones for the Camaro, the Corvette, et cetera. So that, cause I knew I could sell them on eBay and make my $500 <laughs> yeah. back, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to be able to speak in the language and you can't expect that an owner just knows. Well, he just knows I haven't gotten a raise in a year. Well, everything else. Well, if you look, if you step outside of your industry and look at other industries, okay, other businesses, what other businesses always have a cost of living raise every year, index raise every year, as compared as a percentage of all the businesses that are out there? I didn't get one every year. I work for for a Fortune 100 company. I didn't, I didn't get one every year. I didn't know of anybody that did. Now, however, now techs have that leverage. Man, this is a great time to be a tech. Not an arrogant tech, but an educated tech. A tech who goes out to establish his worth because he knows what questions to ask. And if he doesn't, he listens to podcasts like this. He asks questions. He reads. All the information is out there. Again, like I said before, turn off the effing game. Turn on your brain. Because that guy on the field who's carrying the football don't give a rat's ass about you. Live or die, he don't care. He gets paid. Wear his jersey with his name on it. You pay too much freaking money for an entertainer? <laughs> the hell do you do? Shut up, sing. Shut up and carry the football. Don't care. He ain't paying your wage. He ain't making it for your family. Yeah, and educated, you can use that leverage but not abuse it you're going to yeah. try to abuse it it's going to blow up but you know but yeah because you can educate look, what you're trying to do is you're trying to come look I, i've been running a business for a long time okay what i consider to be a long time in, in this you know um over two decades okay so we're, we're um 24 years now all right um and I've had techs come to me and flat out tell me they've never ran a business. They don't know anything about it, except they know. They just know what opportunities I'm missing because they've been a tech. Really? Okay. Show me the math. What? I'm willing to listen. I could be wrong. Hell, I could absolutely be wrong. Remember the first guys, the first time they came in and said, you have to buy an alignment machine. Okay, I got to buy an alignment machine. Yeah, I see if the payment is this and this and this. And look, you've paid for it. All you got to do is 10 and a half or 11 alignments and you've paid for it. Really? What about my fixed expenses during that period of time? What? If I haven't budgeted for that money, what happens to my fixed expenses? Where does the money come from? What? Oh, you just don't know. You just don't want to spend the money because you're cheap. No. <laughs> so I got the alignment machine. I just bought one used, obviously, so that I could lower the cost. And then I rebudgeted and, you know, we made up for it. Not a problem. Yeah, I missed it by a few years. But that was the big pitch for the uh, big box analyzers, the Sun mm -hmm. machines, the uh, SEA Allen machines, the, well, there's one more big one. Oh, and Bear. Bear, Bear and a Counselor 2. I still have a Counselor 2 in my outbuilding. <laughs> <laughs> Raster rise. <laughs> <laughs> but I think those things were, oh, man, high 20s, low 30 grand. Yep. And the uh, that was the same exact sales pitch, if I remember the, the story's right that all you had to do was this many cars a day, you would charge, give the customer the report, and there's check boxes where uh, the printout would say it needs wiper blades. 
but you'd hand it to the customer and the customer would be like, oh, the computer says I need <laughs> wiper blades. You better do them. And that was that was the pitch. And they sold a lot of those things. Man, there's a ton of them sitting in the back oh, corners yeah. of shops. Maybe not so, many, so much anymore, but years ago, wow, they were yeah. everywhere. Yeah, th- there's a reason. Look, if, if anybody's a front-end man who's listening, who actually is proficient at doing alignments, it's an art, man. It's a craft. To do a proper alignment yeah. um, is a skill set that, that I, I flat out admire. There are guys that do so much better than yep. I do. I can get everything where it's supposed to be, but there's not much grace involved. And there are guys that can look at the geometry and just know. I mean, okay. So we took something that was a craft, a real skill, and we dumbed it down to the point where now you can have basically the selling point is we can take somebody who's never seen a car before and then they enter in the year make model of the vehicle and a video comes up and shows them what to do and what size wrench to put and what location to turn in what direction every single step. So they don't have to do anything except know how to get it in the green. The fact that it scrubs the tires that it does whatever. Green yep. is good, right? Set the tone and let good. it go. And they call that an alignment. Well, that's an alignment. I I couldn't agree with you more. I've had this discussion with a couple of techs. Um, it's one of those, I think it's one of those few areas of auto repair, especially nowadays, where you could have the reputation in town as being the guy. So you kind of have the diagnostics end of things. You can be the guy, you know, in town or you know, whatever, whatever radius. You can be the guy. You're if your car doesn't run right, if you got a weird electrical problem, take it to this person. He or she, they'll figure it out. Same with the alignments. You can't get that alignment right. Your your car's chewing up tires. You've been to two or three different shops for their alignments. That I know there's the guy. He works here. And after that, it gets pretty rough, you know. You don't really have the brakes guy. You don't really have uh, certain other aspect areas of the auto repair where you could be just known as, you know, the one. Uh, and, and and that that could be an actual, you know, almost uh, pedestal or specialized skill yeah. shoot for, I guess. You know, um, or achieve. What was funny is here in Charlotte, off of there was a place that was uh, uptown. Um, place looked like a dungeon from the inside. I mean, it was dark and dank, and um, they used to align all nature of vehicles. It didn't matter buses, cars, uh, trucks. Didn't matter, but they did it with the string system. Okay, this is a system that I learned on string and then light aligner. Oh, so, yeah. Um, they did it in pits. Okay, I mean that this was. Old school, they didn't change string aligners, okay, which were old when I was learning on them back in the 70s. (laughs) But they were always known for alignments because these guys knew. They knew what it took to set it up, you know, interviewing the guy was, what kind of driving you do? When's the last time you heard any of tech that you know walk over or turn to a service writer and say, hey, listen, find out if this guy does, uh, is he a salesman? See, he's got a lot of miles on this car. Has he spent a lot of time on the highway? Or is this person going to the mountains where it's twisty all the time? Are they doing local? Because I'm going to set the front end up for that. 
yep. right? You don't. But that's old school. That's the way we never. Learned. I've never heard that. No. Right? Because it was customer service. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I I kind of lament that. I you know the I my first ever uh, podcast with Carm as a you know individual as a guest. I had lamented about yeah. that that some of the craftsmanship has gone away, and, and a lot of it's kind of sad. Um, and it's not just auto repair. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to Jocko a link. Uh, a, Seal Team Six does some stuff with a uh, leadership training, or you know, he talks about it. Yep, he's a Seal Navy Seal. Yeah, Richard Marshenko died about a month ago, which oh. was the head of uh, Seal Team Six. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was quite the character. So Jocko is involved also in some uh, je- well boot making and then um, jeans making jeans in the USA. And they had to go find old retired workers to sh- teach people how to use the looms. Nobody knew how to use a loom. Yeah. And that's that, that was a few years away from being gone. <laughs> that's terrible. It's just so sad to think about. And that, you know, that's maybe a bad example, but there's so much of that stuff that it, it might just one day be gone. Nobody will know, really have to know how to do it. They'll have to try to reteach themselves how to do it the, the old way. Well, I'm encouraged because I see that there's a resurgence of artisan craftsmanship. It's, it's people are going back to, you know, making things as simple as using brake rotors to make uh, pans, uh, cast iron pans and, and steel pans in, in this country. Um, Handmade boots, et cetera. You know, there are, there are a lot of the older stuff is coming back, which really makes me smile. Um, yeah. Because, you know, like you, I, I lament not seeing it. But, yeah, the, see, auto repair as a service has become a commodity. Yep. And as a commodity, it's faster, cheaper. Who could do yep. it faster? And the, you know, um, your example about Rolex and not finding, excuse me, about um, the looms. Rolex had the same problem with the Rolex Daytona, which enjoyed a resurgence. It's a watch that you saw that was Paul Newman had. Well, they didn't have anybody to make it, so they had to bring the retirees back to teach the younger watchmakers how to make this watch <laughs> because they didn't have it. I'm a watch collector. So auto repairs become a, a, a commodity, and it isn't valued as, as a, a, a service anymore advocacy which is what in my estimation is represents the highest form of service which is to be an advocate for your for your uh client is frowned upon because if you had two shops one shop and they were serving this the uh, similar demographic in a different part of town so they weren't direct competition with one another if everything was was identical, literally everything was identical, the skill set of the employees, the number of employees, the number of cars that could be handled today, everything, the uh, commodity-based shop, volume-based shop is going to make more money than, than the advocate-based, relationship-based shop. It's just a, a fact of life, um, which is the reason that a lot of third-party apps that you see have worked assiduously, RepairPal, Door, a number of others, or open bay rather, uh, to reduce auto repair to a commodity. Well, when you reduce auto repair to a commodity, can you afford to pay your tax? 
Can you afford to, to invest the money in the ADAS equipment and the tech training in the Pico scopes and the, in any of the, the equipment that you need to service these technologically advanced vehicles? No. But you have outside market forces that are driving this industry in a direction that it need not go. And it's up to shop owners to say, no, I mean, look at what happened to businesses that uh, adopted the Groupon model. Go online and, and look at all the complaints <laughs> because they drove Groupon, Groupon drove businesses out of business because of, of their pricing model and how much money. Basically, it's just somebody reaching into your pocket and wanting to make you feel fortunate that they were willing to do that. Be grateful yep. that I'm reaching into your pocket and I'm not giving you a reach around either so that I can wind up taking your wallet. Oh, man, this has been great. This has been great. When can we do part two? Because anytime you want. But what I'd like to do, and I'm imposing myself here, I'm, 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 um, I really want to go away. I, I really want to go over uh, basic numbers for text. Okay, uh, I promise I won't. I, I won't bore the, the the hell out of it. Well, I I, I might, but you know, I'll, I'll throw in um, occasional bit of profanity, and make make fun of myself at some time, <laughs> and that'll um, that'll make guys smile. But I really want guys to understand that they can earn what they want to earn if they know how to ask for it, so that they can um, receive the value that you and I both agree they should get, but they have to learn how to communicate. So what I really want to do is go over financials. Um, and I'm not saying that we're going to wind up going in, into the weeds on this. I just want to know that techs, when they walk into their shop where they're working or a shop where they want to work, or especially where they're working first, actually, they can look at what's being presented and they can ha have a better understanding of their place in the market and their place in their shop because now they have a wider perspective. It's not just about me, yeah. me, me. It's how do I fit into the bigger picture? Let me see the bigger picture. Well, if you understand gross profit, if you understand the difference between markup and margin, if you understand some formulas that are necessary for you to determine what you're entitled to or what you can earn, if you can understand what loaded versus unloaded labor rate is, if you understand what a balance sheet is, if you understand what an income statement is, if you understand, and I'm not trying to turn anybody into accountant or bookkeeper, I just want you to be able to, to, to know what does ARO mean, okay? Yeah. I like it. I think if we do it sooner rather than later, I mean, it's numbers for text with Dutch Silverstein part. It'll be part two. Let the Yid teach you about numbers. I, I really appreciate. <laughs> yeah. I really, really appreciate yep, you coming on. Really, really, really look up to you. It's and misplaced. I'm, I'm a terrible human being. <laughs> I'm very, no way. <laughs> but I appreciate the opportunity to be on. I look forward so, to uh, going over uh, that with you in, in, uh, whenever you'd like. This is, uh, this is really important. Techs have an opportunity to shine, and I want to see them shine. Yeah, me too. Me too. You're very welcome. Thank you very, very much. Don't forget, guys, you can reach me at mattfonslopodcast at gmail.com and you can track me down on Facebook and I really thank you for listening. Can't thank you enough. Thank you to Napa and again, thank you to Dutch for taking the time to sit down with me and I'll talk to you next time. 
You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.